Today we are continuing our series throughout the book of Acts, and we are continuing this series called Transform. How many of you guys want to be like Jesus? Anybody want to be like Jesus? Like in every way, you want to be like Jesus. You want to be mocked and spat upon and lied about and <laughs> falsely accused and betrayed. Anybody rethinking that just a little bit? I mean, because this is kind of what Jesus went through. And today is Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday, Jesus came into town riding on a donkey. There are palm branches being waved. And those palm branches were a symbol of victory. In fact, through ancient times, the palm branches was always a symbol of victory. And King Solomon even had the palm branches carved into the temple. Uh, later on, the martyrs would use the palm branch as a symbol of victory, even over death, to symbolize that even though they were martyred, they still won. And so Jesus comes in with these palm branches waved. But we know that by the end of the week, that there will be a betrayal that happens. And as they're having the last, what we call the Last Supper, John chapter 13, verse 25, it says, So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Who's the betrayer? And Jesus answered, he said, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And so when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him and Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. And so if Jesus was betrayed, we're probably going to experience some level of that too. And that leads us to Acts chapter 13. Remember last Last week I talked about, I skipped ahead to Acts 15. If you missed that, uh, you've got to go back and catch it if you need to make a big decision because I talked about how to make decisions in the kingdom of God. If you ever wondered how to make decisions, I put together kind of some of my greatest hits of things that I find myself telling people all the time of how do you go through a decision-making process. And, but we're, we're going back to Acts 13 because Acts 13 at the beginning there, and then at the end of Acts 15, we see something that happens that sets the course ultimately to the end of Paul's life. We can see the story, the thread go on throughout. And so Acts 13 is really a turning point in the history of the church, because for the first time ever, the church intentionally sends out missionaries. And this is the part, I mean, if you go through the book of Acts, you know, Acts chapter 1, it says that, you know, the gospel spread throughout all Jerusalem, Judea, Galilee, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, the first couple chapters of Acts are in Jerusalem. The next batch is in that next section. And then chapter 13 turns the corner where we start to go to the ends of the earth. And a couple guys are selected to do this and sent out. Guys you know by the name of Paul and Barnabas. So Paul and Barnabas are sent out and... But it's not just Paul and Barnabas. We're going to see a, a third wheel coming here in just a little bit. Barnabas, if you'll remember, is the guy, when Paul came into faith, all he had was a resume of being a Christian murderer. That was his resume. And no one believed that he was saved or that he was following Jesus. And so Barnabas, his name means son of encouragement. He literally, you know, comes along Paul and he puts his arm around him and says, I'll take you in. I'll disciple you. I'll vouch for you. Barnabas put his reputation on the line for Paul and brought him in so that others would welcome him. At this time, in Acts 13, Barnabas is probably in his 50s. And then, so Barnabas is, is on the trip, and then the guy named Paul that we know. Paul is, he's probably about 46 or 47, somewhere in his late 40s at this time. Just a little bit older than I am at the start of this missionary journey. And what I find interesting, and I've really been looking at this a lot lately, 
But a lot of people throughout history, throughout the Bible, through, throughout all of uh, even revivals and all sorts of things, the people who did notable things really didn't start until later in life. I mean, so here Paul, he's going on his first missionary journey in his late 40s. Now, those of us who, like, maybe you were like me in your 20s and 30s and 40s even, I think, man, life is over. It's passed me by, you know? It's all, like, I'm already too late to do anything. No, I mean, you think about all throughout the scriptures. Moses didn't really do much of impact until he was 80, right? And this is a theme throughout all of scripture of God using people in notable, significant ways. Let this be an encouragement to you. If you find yourself, maybe you're like, oh man, maybe I missed the boat somewhere or I haven't accomplished what I want to accomplish. I want you to understand that God doesn't even really start to make impactful things with people until they've had seasons after seasons of preparation that they thought were the real deal, right? And so I want to encourage you in that. Paul just is getting started in his late 40s. <clears throat> and so Paul is there, and then also there's this guy named John Mark. And if you don't know John Mark, you actually probably do know John Mark. You just don't know that you know John Mark. So you got Barnabas in his 50s, Paul's probably in his late 40s, but John Mark is just a young guy in his early 20s probably. And John Mark, you know, if you'll remember a couple weeks ago when Pastor Aaron preached on Peter getting set free from prison, remember they're all praying at the house that, that house where they were praying for Peter to be set free from, that was Mary's house. Mary is John Mark's mother. And so this, is, this guy had been around this. He had seen miracles. And he's ready to go on this missionary journey. And his Greek name was Mark. His Jewish name was John. And he's actually the cousin of Barnabas. So he's related. So some of you guys are like, man, there's a lot of people related around this church. It's biblical, okay? <laughs> All throughout Scripture. And so John Mark is cousins of Barnabas. But the reason you probably know him is because John Mark is the, is the author of the gospel by his name, the gospel of Mark. He eventually writes the gospel of Mark. And he's seen a lot. And he's this third wheel on Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. But something happens in Acts chapter 13 that sets a course, that sets a, a bad course, really, that has to be reconciled. Acts 13, verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and they came to Perga and in Pamphylia and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, if you're just going through your daily Bible reading and you just read through that real quick, there doesn't seem to be anything of note there, right? But that little phrase, John left them, was a big deal. It was such a big deal that we will see that it causes a split between Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas, as they get ready, they go through, you know, so John Mark leaves, and in the meantime, they experience a lot of persecution as they're going through different cities. Paul gets stoned, almost dies, and then they're getting ready for their next missionary journey in Acts chapter 15. So some time has passed. And the, Acts, or the Jerusalem Council we, we talked about last week passed, and then they come to get ready to set sail again. And so after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and let's go back and visit all the brothers that we've seen before. Which was really remarkable because Paul is basically saying, 
hey, that was so fun to get persecuted and almost beat to death. Let's go do that again, right? And he goes back and he said, let's go do this again and see these people and encourage them, see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take one who had withdrawn with them and skipped out. And so Paul's like, no, 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 no. We're not taking this guy again. I mean, this guy, he bailed on us and he missed out on all this stuff. And so there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. And Barnabas took Mark and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. So Paul's like, he's not having any of this, right? He's like, John Mark, no, you don't make the cut. Why? Well, probably he's thinking this. He's thinking John Mark wasn't with us when we were being persecuted. John Mark wasn't there when I was being stoned almost to death. He, he's not with us in the hard times. He doesn't deserve to be with us in the good times. And so Paul and Barnabas split. And Paul feels betrayed. And most of us in this room have probably to some degree or another, have felt betrayed by somebody. How many of you guys have been there, right? Been betrayed by somebody, felt hurt, and it stings to feel betrayed. Every single one of us have probably felt something like that. It, it reminds me, I was thinking about this this week. A few years ago, I was, I was out running. How many runners do we have in the building? I always love to do that because some of you guys are like, yeah, I'm a runner, and the rest of you guys hate those people, right? And so I get it. I was out running. And as I'm running, I'm just, and I love to run because I get in like this zone. I'll prepare sermons while I'm running. I'll pray while I'm running. I just, I know that sounds weird to some of you, but I just, I'll get in the zone. I'm in the zone. I'm praying. I'm preparing. I'm doing whatever. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this bug just whoop right in my eye. And it gets lodged underneath my eyelid, in between my eyelid and my eyeball. And I'm, I'm still running, though, because I'm not quitting, right? And so I'm just, I'm running, and I'm trying to get this bug out of my eye. And as I'm trying to get the bug out of my eye, it repeatedly stings me from the inside. And so I got that bug out piece by piece as I was running. Praise God. He did not survive that one. But I was sitting, I had this thought. I'm like, I'm, I'm still running. The bug is, like, stinging me. And I'm like, what did I do to deserve this? I kind of had a Job moment while I was running, Right? But that's what betrayal feels like. It's like you get stung and you're like, you're looking at it, you're like, what did I do? What did I do to deserve this? And Paul is sitting there when John Mark leaves and whatever John Mark said or whatever happened, Paul is so hurt that he can no longer walk together with this man. And so I don't know about you, but I have experienced things. I, I could tell you a lot of stories. And, but just one of them to kind of, help you understand that I'm not immune to this either. We, years and years ago, we had friends that were lifelong friends. I mean, lifelong friends in our wedding, like lifelong friends type people. We grew up with them, you know, even while we're dating, like we were hanging out with these people. And, and so when, when it came, like they, they came to the church and were really involved and, and there was one particular decision that I, made as, you know, for, as a church leader, as the pastor of the church, I made a decision to go in a certain direction. And it wasn't a bad decision. It wasn't a sin, you know. In fact, it turns out it was actually a great decision. But over that one decision, like instantaneously, these lifelong friends just split, left the church, and refused to have fellowship with us ever since. And I say that 
Because you've experienced probably something like that before. Paul experienced something like that before. And when you're in those moments, you have that moment of like feeling stung. Like, what did I do? What did I do? To, like you look back and you're trying to, what did I do to deserve this, you know? And it stings. I want you to understand, as a result of these betrayals that we experience, whether they're small or big, it affects every part of our life. You know, the statistics, I just, I just read some statistics. Nearly half of Americans report sometimes or always feeling alone or left out. Nearly half. These are the fruit of these type of interactions that we have. The fruit is we feel alone. The fruit is we feel left out. 20% report that they rarely or never feel close to people or feel like there are people they can talk to. It's one in five. Like we could just count one, two, three, four, five, and every fifth person, they'd feel like almost never do they feel like they're close to anybody or have anybody to talk to. The, that's the result. Gen Z, we talk a lot about Gen Z. They say that they are the loneliest generation and claim to have the worst health of any other generation before them because of these factors. What I'm trying to tell you is the topic we're talking about today, it affects everything. If you don't understand how to deal with betrayal or hurt in your life, it will affect your church life. It will affect your job. It will affect your friendships. It will affect your marriage. It'll affect the relationship you have with your kids and how you interact with them. It will affect your friendships. It will touch every part of your life. It will touch the purpose God has for you. This is why this is so important. And so we have to learn how do we wrestle with being hurt? How do we wrestle with, with betrayal? And so I want to give you some thoughts. These are not all-inclusive thoughts, but these are thoughts that will help you Walk through this. Now, as you listen to these thoughts, I, I want to give you a warning. Do not judge this message on the simplicity or complexity. Judge this message on how much of it you are doing. Because this message may seem very simple at times. And you may have heard these things before. You may have heard me preach these things before. That's irrelevant, whether you've heard them before, whether you know them. It's irrelevant how simple they are. The question I want you to walk away with is, how much of this am I actually doing in my life? Because if we're not actually doing these things, it doesn't matter how simple and powerful it is. If we don't do it, we won't experience it. And so I believe if we participate in these things, amazing things will happen and healing will begin to happen. Number one is this, make peace a priority. Make peace priority one, in fact. If you have been hurt, if you've been betrayed, make peace priority one. Romans chapter 12, verse 17 and 18. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to, what, to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Remember, this is simple, but it is not easy, right? When you've been hurt, Sometimes the last thing you want to do is to make peace. The first thing you want to do is to repay evil. All right, it says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. What does this mean? This means that even if you've been hurt, or even if you're the perpetrator, whatever the conflict is, that you have a responsibility, according to the word of God, to be a peaceful person and to do what you can to make peace. The other person may not make peace. But that's not your, your problem. Your problem is to make sure that you've done everything in your ability to, 
to be a person of peace. Let me just give you a secret. If you're hurting right now, let me give you a secret to healing. Here, here's the secret to healing. A secret to healing is when, when you've been betrayed, you must make it a priority to get and to keep your heart right before God and before other people. That's your number one priority. And some of us like, it, it, it's, not even, it's not about getting even. It's not even about fixing everything. It's not about setting the story straight. It's not about rearranging the pieces. Your number one priority is to get your heart right and clean before God and to keep your heart right and clean before other people. And listen, the reason I tell you this is because I, I'm, I'm, I'm serious. This, if you want to be healed, if you want to stop hurting, this is your quickest path. Your quickest path to stop hurting is not to get even. That will not stop the pain. Your quickest path to stop the, the pain is not to even fix everything. Your quickest path to healing is to get a clean heart before God and a clean heart before other people. Can somebody say amen to that? Even if you don't believe it, it's true. Make peace priority one. In one of my worst moments of betrayal in my life where I felt so hurt and so betrayed, I was so confused. I, was, I didn't know what to do. A friend of mine gave me this book. It's, uh, some of you guys may have seen it. It's called A Tale of Three Kings. Anybody ever seen this book before? All right, a couple of you guys have. If you have not, this book, when I was in, and write it down, get it, because it, it will help you. That This book, what it did is it helped me see how to have a purer heart towards God and a purer heart towards people, even when I felt like I was 100% betrayed. This helped me have a cleaner heart towards people. And so it's a story of David. It's a story of how David was betrayed by uh, King Saul, and ultimately he was betrayed by his son Absalom. But in the midst of all, he remained pure before God. All right? And so... In this idea of betrayal, we know that Jesus was betrayed and Jesus experienced all of this. How many of you guys have been to Israel? If you guys have been to Israel, you've seen this, just a handful. All of us haven't been, I haven't been. And so I like to take you to the places that help us to see and to picture this. And so let's go and experience a little bit of what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's watch. Jesus and his remaining 11 apostles had just finished the Passover meal. It was their last supper together before everything changed. After the Passover meal was complete, Jesus and his disciples left the borrowed room and went to Gethsemane. Now, Gethsemane is an olive grove. You can see it right down here. It's by the Kidron Valley on the lower slopes of the Mount of Olives. It's across the Kidron Valley from the Temple Mount, which you can see up there. Gethsemane means olive press in Hebrew, and it indicates that this was a commercial oil operation. Olive oil in the ancient world was a precious commodity being used for everything from cooking to cleaning to skin care to lamp fuel. In addition to olive presses, Gethsemane was full of olive trees. In fact, there's still an olive grove preserved here today. The shelter of these trees made it a great place to seek solitude. It appears that Jesus and his disciples would come to a particular spot, a garden area buried within the olive groves. Jesus would take his closest friends here to rest and pray after long days in the temple complex. 
But this time it was different. Jesus was overwhelmed with anxiety. The Gospel of Matthew says that he told Peter, James, and John, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Matthew 26, 38. The Garden of Gethsemane, here at the foot of the Mount of Olives, is now protected by the walled grounds of the Church of All Nations, also known as the Church of the Agony. It's a peaceful garden among a grove of ancient olive trees, looking back at the eastern wall of the city of Jerusalem. It's here that the Gospel of Luke says Jesus knelt down and prayed. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Luke 22, 42-44. Never before had Jesus' closest disciples heard such language from their teacher, and never before had they seen Jesus in such anguish. The scripture even goes on to tell us that Jesus sweated drops of blood. Now today, the medical community calls this very rare condition hematidrosis, or blood sweat, where the blood oozes from the forehead or the tear ducts, the nose or the nails. It can be caused by severe distress, and obviously, Jesus was in severe distress. Gethsemane, the name of the olive grove itself, even contributes to the agony of the scene. Hebrew gat means press, and shemen means oil. It was as if Jesus' sorrow was so intense that he was being pressed, squeezed, crushed under the weight of a huge olive press. Jesus fully understood everything that was about to transpire. And his prayer, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, was such an important moment in time. Some have said that that was the point that the entire battle was won. The final point of resolve to see his mission through to the end. No turning back. Jesus understood his identity. He understood his destiny. Jesus himself would be the final Passover lamb that was to be slain. Likely bolder now than before he left to pray, Jesus reconvened with his disciples and said this. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Matthew 26, 45 and 46. As I walk through the Garden of Gethsemane today, it's remarkable to note that this section of trees dates to between 1,500 and 2,000 years ago. See those thick, gnarly trunks? Many scholars believe that these actual trees have been pruned back each year since the time of Jesus. So it's very possible that a few of these trees had a front row seat for what transpired next. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. 
So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. John 18, 2 through 5. Jesus, now a man fully resolved, faced Judas and the detachment of soldiers head on. He identified himself and willingly gave himself over to them. And so Jesus, even in the garden, remember what happens? You know, as they come to arrest him, Peter, you know, takes a sword and cuts off the guy's ear. What does Jesus do? I don't know, he picks up the ear and he puts it back on. But the point is, he's still even making peace in the midst of being betrayed. That's what Jesus is doing. All right, I'm going to move quickly through these next next three. Uh, The second thought is this. If you've experienced hurt or betrayal, reset the ten. So make peace priority one. The second thought is reset the ten. John Maxwell talks about how he approaches life. And he sees everyone that he meets with a 10 on their forehead, you know, like one through 10, 10 being the best. And so he starts off every single person that he knows, they're a 10, they're the best, which I think is a great way to live life, right? So many of us, because of life, we don't ever start anybody off with a 10 anymore. We, you know, we get skeptical, we get, you know, whatever. But I think it's great. He starts everybody off with a 10. Now, how many of you guys know pretty quickly, somebody's going to do something that disappoints you or that moves that number down just a little bit, right? And possibly a lot. And, but he starts everybody off with a 10. And he says, even if somebody does something to take that number down, I don't leave them at that down number. I do as often as I can and as able as I am, I do, I do what I can to reset the 10 back on their forehead in my own heart and my own mind. I think it's a powerful, powerful idea. Now, for me, I have, as a pastor, I have a lot of what I call first dates and a lot of breakups. Because as a pastor, I have a lot of people like, hey, I want to go to coffee with you. Like, okay, we're on a first date, I guess, you know, and, and see what all the church is about. And then I have a lot of people like, hey, I want to go to coffee with you. And I don't like this church anymore. And I'm, see you later, you know. And so over time, like I kind of just got used to that. But over time, honestly, what happened with me is I started to to start get suspicious about every time somebody wanted to have coffee with me. Because I thought there's bad news coming, Right. And so I started, to, I mean, I thought somebody's going to have bad news. Somebody's going to, you know, twist something that I say or something. You know, I started to really get paranoid that every coffee meeting was a bad meeting. And so I, that was kind of my way to deal with the problem is I just, paranoia became my plan to battle the fear that I had. So it was basically be afraid before, of the fear before the fear could happen. And that, and that way I protect myself. And so I became paranoid quite a bit and Somewhere along the way, God broke through to me, and he was like, Sean, you cannot live this way. You cannot pastor this way. You cannot be a, a, a friend this way. You can't be a husband this way. You cannot be, be paranoid of everything to try to protect your heart just because you've been hurt in the past. Now, some of us know exactly what I'm talking about because that's how you're living your life right now. You start everybody off with a two on their head and they have to earn the 10. And somewhere along the way, because of God convicting me of this, I, just, I made this decision. I would rather live surprised than paranoid. 
I just thought, you know what? If somebody's got bad news for me, I'm going to be shocked. I'm just going to live surprised. And I, I'm not perfect at this, but I, I'm telling you, I do this all the time. I try to just go into every meeting, like, I'm going to live surprised. Like, if you got bad news for me, I just, I just believe from now on that everybody loves me. I mean, every, I'm everybody's favorite person, you know, and, and I'm everybody's favorite pastor. And, and so, I, I mean, I'm surprised. Now, let me tell you, I get surprised a lot, Okay. <laughs> But I'm resetting the 10. Everybody that I can, any, whenever I'm able, I'm going to reset the 10. And, but I refuse to live paranoid. Now, if you are in a situation right now and you've been betrayed and the hurt is so tender that you can't do this yet, okay, I understand. You're in process. These things sometimes take time. But what I want to encourage you, even if you can't over this one situation, here's my warning. Don't go and lay this situation over every other relationship in your life. Don't take this betrayal and now put a two on everybody. Because I'm hurt here. Listen, everybody's not that. They could become that, but everybody's not that. Don't put that lens over every church, over every situation, or every season in people's life. Just because somebody in the past hurts you doesn't mean they're going to in the future. Don't walk in paranoia and a protected heart. No, you know what this is called biblically? This is called believing the best, and it's a command to do. And so I'm gonna reset the 10 as often as I can. You know, some of the things we see from Paul and John Mark is, is this. We understand that even seasoned believers are gonna have disagreements. So just because there's a disagreement, even a sharp disagreement that leads to a parting of ways for a season, it doesn't mean that there's not people there who lo don't love Jesus or are just out to hurt. No, even seasoned believers have conflicts. And trust and forgiveness aren't the same thing. You can forgive and trust can still be earned back. I'm not saying that you just, on you just automatically reset trust. That, that is built back. But we can forgive and reset the tin on people's heads and say, you know what? The slate is clean. The slate is clean. Forgiveness doesn't always mean that the relationship can go back to the way it was. In some ways, it can't. In some situations, they can't. But for many of us, here's the reality. It can. And listen, there are some situations, yeah, you've got to have boundaries. Some extreme situations where you've got to part way. Like there's, I'm, not, I'm not taking away from any of that. There, boundaries are healthy, all that type of stuff. You may need to put those in place. But sometimes we can use boundaries as, a, as an excuse. And we can turn boundaries into walls. Boundaries are not intended to be walls. And so reset the tin. Refuse to live Paranoid. So what happens is, you know, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, 2 Timothy is the last letter that Paul wrote in his life. He's most likely in prison on his way to being executed. The very last things that he writes, even at the end of that letter, is this. Watch this. This is amazing. He says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark. He's talking about John Mark. He says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Somewhere along the way, we don't know when, we don't know how, we don't know who did it. But somebody decided that they were going to, it's like there's this, this chasm of distrust and somebody decided they were going to just reach out and try to build a bridge. And it was either John, John Mark or it was Paul, we don't know. But here at the end of his life, John Mark from, went from being useless to Paul to useful. He went from being just, you know, estranged to being a necessary friend. Reset the 10. 
Is there somebody, again, don't judge this message on its simplicity. Judge it on, am I applying it in my life? Are, we, are there people in our life that we are holding at a two, at a one, maybe negative? Like, they're, they're not even up to even, like, to the zero yet. Like, they're, they're in the, the negative category. Reset the 10. All right, number three is this. Be aware of your 20. Make peace priority one. Reset the 10. Be aware of your 20. What, is, what does this mean? Well, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 17 says this. There are two sides to every story. Can somebody say amen to that? If I'll get any amen out of you, I ought to get that one out of you. All right. The first one to speak sounds true until you hear the other side, and then they set the record straight, right? See, sometimes who is right in a situation is very clear, and sometimes who is right in a situation just seems clear. And most certainly to, to us, our side, how many of you guys know, our side always seems clear, right? It's like, it's obvious. Like, I'm right. They're wrong. I, I've shared this story before, but it's been so immensely helpful in my life to hear this illustration. But it's the story that I heard a long time ago about this seminary professor, Bible college professor. He, was, he got up and he stood up in front of his, his class of Bible college students. He's getting ready to teach them theology. And he says this, he says, before I get started, I want you guys to know that 20% of what I'm going to tell you today is wrong. The problem is, I don't know which 20%. What is he saying? He's saying, I think I have it all right, but there's probably 20% of my theology that I think I have right, but it may not be accurate. I just don't know which one it is, which part it is, because how many of you guys know all of us believe our theology right now? Whatever you believe right now is 100% right, right? Or you wouldn't believe it. But can we just be honest for a second? How many of, you of us have had a situation in our life where maybe years ago we believed something theologically that we no longer believe today? How many of you guys have something like that? Let's just see a hand, a show of hands. All right, look around the room. All right, there you go. Yeah, every, I've got my hand up. What does that mean? That means years ago, whenever you believed that, you thought you were 100% right and there was no other way and everyone else was wrong. The problem is 20% of it was off. You just didn't know which 20%. And so I've thought about this and I applied this to my relationships. Because as I go back and I look at situations where I feel 100% betrayed, and I look at my life and my decisions and my conversations and I replay it in my mind. How many of you guys do this? You replay it in your mind and you're always better at arguing and winning arguments in your mind. You win every single time, you know? And so I'm going back, but I'm replaying it. I'm like with a fresh lens. Like, God help me see, am I wrong? And even when I go back and do that and I don't see anything that I would do differently, you know what I do now? I realize that, you know what? There's probably 20% in there that I may have messed up. Problem is I don't know which 20%. You know what that does for me? I give grace to situations now where I, no longer, where I used to not give grace. Because even in moments where I feel 100% right, there's probably 20% in there that is a blind spot I just cannot see. And I'm guessing that the same is true for you. That's why grace is indispensable in relationships. You can't, even in situations where it seems like you're 100% right. Watch this. Watch what, I was looking at this this week in Acts 15, 39. We already read this scripture, but let's look at it with some emphasis. It says, and there arose, so John Mark, you know, he, he 
he wants to come back. Paul won't let him. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. As I was looking at that this week, I thought for the very first time, I was like, you know, Paul feels betrayed by John Mark. But what if Paul is the betrayer? Because let's step back and let's think about it from Barnabas' perspective. Barnabas was the one, when no one else would take a chance on Paul, he stepped up, put his arm around him. Barnabas was the one that risked his reputation on Paul. Barnabas was the son of encouragement. He brought encouragement. Barnabas spent years discipling Paul. Barnabas gave Paul a shot when no one else would. And here, Paul is, from Barnabas' perspective, could be just arrogantly saying, I'm not taking that guy with me. And Barnabas is like, I took a risk on you. Why won't you take a risk on him? And Paul's like, nope, I'm going my own way. What if Paul was the betrayer? But as we read the story at first, we think, oh, poor Paul. He's, and certainly maybe he was betrayed. But what if he was also the betrayer? You see, we have to be aware of our 20. Because even in situations where it seems like from our perspective, we are 100% being betrayed. What if there's part of it that we need to hold up before God and say, God, even if I can't see it, I'm just going to give grace because what if I can't see my 20? Make peace priority one. Reset the 10. Make, be aware of your 20. And then the last thing is this. Give God your 100. See, when you've been hurt or you've been betrayed, here's your temptation. I know it's my temptation as well. The temptation when you've been hurt or betrayed is to now withhold a part of yourself from God. Because what you used to do is say, God, I'm all yours. God, I will love 100%. God, I'm putting myself out there. God, I'm going to be vulnerable. God, I'm going to step into relationship. God, I'm going to do this. I'm going to step into purpose. And what happens is when you get betrayed and you get hurt, and when that happens a few times and time after time, then what happens is instead of saying, God, here it is, we say, God, here's part of it. I'm going to keep this part back for myself, and I'm going to guard this part of my life and my heart to protect it. And what happens is we end up trying to become Lord over that part of our life. And we say, God, I'm going to give you all of this, but I'm not going to step into that again. We begin to make inner vows and we begin to say, I'm never going to love like that again. I'm never going to put myself out like that again. I'm never going to give like that again. I'm never going to be vulnerable like that again. I'm never going to serve like that again. I'm never going to, I'm never. I've done this. And thankfully, the Holy Spirit revealed to me that I was giving God not my 100, but maybe my 85. And I said, no, I'm just going to hold this part back because I don't know if I can trust God to protect me. And see, what happens when you give God your 100 is you're giving God your trust. And here's the reality. Are you going to get hurt again? Absolutely you will. Are you going to get taken advantage? Absolutely. Not even a question. So if your prerequisite to giving something to God is a, like a deal-making with God, like, God, I'll give this to you as long as I don't ever get hurt, well, then you're never giving anything to God. But if you give it to God, you will be betrayed again. You will 
Like, like I can just guarantee, like, if you're coming to this church, I'm probably going to do something. I, I guarantee I'm going to do something that's going to disappoint you. It's a, it's a given. I'm going to. I don't want to. I don't try to. It's not my heart. But there are still times when I, I disappoint, times when you're going to disappoint. And so give God your 100 where did Jesus go into the, in the middle of his betrayal? Like, you know, Judas runs off and starts to betray him. Jesus goes to that garden we talked about, Luke chapter 22, verse 39. It says, and he came out and he went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. And when he came to that place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and he prayed. Here's what I want you to, to hear. Your biggest weapon against the pain of betrayal is communion with God. So some of us, we have been withholding part and we've been coming Lord over our, that part of our life. God never authorized that. You, have no, you may have reasons to do that, but you don't have a right to do that. I'm not saying this with a calloused heart towards you. I'm saying this honestly because I believe this is your quickest path towards healing, is to give it back to God and to understand you're going to get hurt again. You're going to be betrayed again. But what is better, to be Lord over your own hurt or to let God be the father of the brokenhearted? And so we give God fully back our 100. We say, God, I'm all in. I'm all in. The worship team can come back because we're, we're getting low on time, but I want to read a scripture as we close out of Psalms chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. And this is like what this story is about. But David, he, he was betrayed by King Saul, right? Saul's hunting him down. But then David becomes king. And David has a son named Absalom. And Absalom, he wants the kingdom ultimately. And what Absalom does, maybe he started off innocently, but he starts off standing by the gate of the king's palace and people would come from the kingdom and they'd come and they'd want to see King David, his father. And they had a problem with the father and they had a problem with King David and Absalom became a listening ear. And the Bible says that eventually Absalom stole the hearts of the people away from David and he betrayed him, eventually took over the kingdom. And so David is writing this psalm right after that. And he says, oh Lord, how many are my foes? <laughs> many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. He's saying, they're saying about me that even you can't save me, God, that I'm so far gone. Verse three. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You're my glory, the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. In the midst of David's biggest betrayal, he says, God, you know my story. You know the hurt. You know the insides and out. You know I've been hurt more than I've ever been hurt. But you, O oh Lord. You can never go wrong with a but you, O oh Lord statement. It's not, it's not but me and my own strength. It's but you, O oh Lord. You are a shield about me. You are my glory. You are the lifter of my head. Your biggest weapon against the pain of betrayal is communion with God. My heart for us today is that we would 
Start a path of healing. I want you to understand healing is possible. You do not have to stay stuck where you are. You do not have to stay stuck. This is such good news. We serve a loving father. He's a father of the brokenhearted. And it doesn't mean that everything is set back right in the natural. What it means is I really believe that you can walk clean before God and clean before other people, that God can reset an innocence in your heart. I really believe that. I know I, he has for me, I know that. And so don't judge this message on how simple it is, but can we just honestly just take an evaluation moment right now and just, God, how much of this am I actually doing? Is peace my priority? Is a clean heart before you a priority? Do I have a 10 over everybody's head or is everybody starting with a, a, a two? God, is it possible that maybe I don't have the full story and even where I feel like I'm 100% right and maybe I am, but God, help us to have grace for other people. God, we give you our 100. Come on right now, can you just see yourself just giving God that part you've been holding back? Oh, it's, it's gonna be hard. I know, I know, I know. I know it's hard. God, we give you back the peace of our life that we've been trying to protect, that we thought we could protect. I'll bring healing right now. Come on, as hard as this will be, let me just challenge you one step further. Can you begin to see people? Maybe there's people you're struggling with right now. Can you begin to see them? Say, God, help me to see them the way you do. Can you just imagine them with the 10 again? Can we believe the best again? And even if we know that the perpetrator intentionally did something to hurt us, can we just come before God and say, God, I know everything's not right, but I release my right, my perceived right to retaliate, and I leave them to your judgment. Help me to walk lighter and free. Can we stand up this morning and respond in worship? Because again, your biggest weapon against the pain of betrayal is communion with God. Let's just commune with God. Let's let him heal our heart in his presence.